Let us turn to the ninth chapter of Romans, where by God's grace we will consider the rest of the inspired preface to these three chapters. I thank those of you who comforted me after last Sunday for the speed and pace that we we're making through this chapter as we did in the previous eight. There is a wonderful preface here to three chapters that contain very hard doctrine, especially for Israelites to hear, who took such great confidence in their relationship to Abraham and the promises of the Old Covenant that it was hard for them to imagine that the nation had been cut, severely cut, and that there was a remnant according to the election of grace, but most of the nation had been passed by. Hard doctrine. Paul doesn't say it immediately. He starts out with a wonderful preface of five verses, and there's much wisdom in that preface for us. The two things that he wants to convince his audience of is first his great affection and concern for them, and then the great privileges that he acknowledges they had under the Old Testament, which he lists in the fourth and fifth verses. There's wisdom here for us, and that is for us to be as wise as Paul, that we would be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves in presenting the gospel when we have an opportunity to share our faith with others. And that is to make the message as attractive and as acceptable as possible not to see if we can be offensive and divisive right off the bat. Right. The truth will be offensive and divisive on its own accord. Right. You won't have to help it in that direction. Right. We want to help make it as acceptable and as attractive as possible. I have pointed out to you before that when you read Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, the Jews would have been thrilled all the way till the invitation at the end, because he was preaching the history of Israel. They would have been shouting amen. And we should be able to find things that we have in common with others and agree upon those things and exalt those things before we bring some different things to bear to them. The truth will take care of itself, and the Lord will separate men over the person and doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 13 is very similar, where the Apostle Paul was preaching in Antioch of Syria, and his sermon, you would find no fault with it as a Jew, until he gets to toward the end and presents the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Here, in Romans chapter 9, because the Apostle knows his reputation about being a possible traitor to the nation of Israel, and having spent his ministry among the Gentiles, might reduce his effectiveness with a Jewish audience for these three chapters, opens with a warming, passionate, personal, praising preface. We want to learn from that. Let me read it to you. The first five verses of Romans chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came? Who is over all? God, blessed forever. Amen. I bless God for His precious Word. What a preamble. What an introduction. What a preface. So what's going to come in these three chapters for Israelites? Notice that it's only implied that there's a serious issue for Him to declare. 
Why is he speaking that he could wish himself accursed for his brethren, his kinsmen, who are Israelites, since he hasn't even declared what the situation is yet? It's, it's implied, which is the easiest way to present it initially. Rather than just hitting them with it, he implies it by his grief for the nation. It's not stated yet. It's going to be stated in verses 6 through 8, and then elaborated on after that. But it doesn't start out that way. There's a lot of wisdom here. May we learn such wisdom to make the message of God's truth attractive and acceptable, not offensive and divisive. Our webmaster and I have spoken this week about this matter, that in our website we may have a slightly different tone, a better tone, in the future of not trying to make our website so hard-hitting and always a hammer and a fire without grace and without a velvet glove, like the apostle uses here in these first five verses. The truth is going to take care of itself. The Lord has shown us a lot of truth. That truth is going to divide most men and separate most from us. But we don't want to be the cause of the divisiveness or separation. We want the truth to be that cause, not ourselves. And the apostle shows us a great example here. We dealt with verses 1 and 2 last Lord's Day. Let's take the minutes that we have this morning and deal with verses 3 through 5. It ends with an amen because it is definitely a preface. It's a preamble. It's an introduction to what's to come. And it's only implied that there is serious trouble in the nation of Israel by God's choice among them in making an election and in making a reprobation. For every one that's elect, it's called election. For every one that is not elect, it's called a reprobation. That means to be rejected. And these three chapters are going to describe the rejection of most Israelites and the acceptance and inclusion of many Gentiles. A staggering change in God's dealings with men. And he introduces it this way. Now he has said in verse 1, in very strong language, that he is speaking the truth and no one should doubt him. And then he says in verse 2, that this situation had caused him great personal grief and concern and it never went away. That he was always burdened with this situation that was at hand which he hasn't told them yet. But now he's going to express it even further. And here he does it in verse 3. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And we want to deal with this third verse. First of all, Paul did not wish. We trust every word in our Bibles. Amen. For I could wish. Now, even if he hadn't used the word could, it would still be the subjunctive mood in English, meaning that it was only something possible, not something factual. The indicative mood is when you are stating a fact with a verb. The subjunctive mood is when you are only stating a possibility or a desire or a wish. But when you've got a could wish in front of it, it's even stronger than merely the subjunctive mood in English. It's a hypothetical statement. That's all he's making here is a hypothetical statement. Because what, and you can, I'm not going to call it hyperbole. We're not, it's not necessary for us to call it hyperbole. It is a very strong statement, impossible, improper, that Paul is saying, To compare himself to Moses and his great intercession for the people of Israel under the Old Testament and to express just how deeply concerned he was for his national kinsmen of a certain sort, which we shall get to momentarily. For I could wish, Paul doesn't wish for this exchange, his conversion or his eternal life for others. It's hypothetical. Paul had sufficient affection and sufficient concern for these people that it was compatible with such a hypothetical statement. He is reaching deep to open up these three chapters by pointing out his great concern for Israel. When we come to chapter 2, he is going to say, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. 
When we come to chapter 14, he's going to say, if by any means, did I say chapter 14? I meant chapter 11. When we come to chapter 11, he's going to say, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. He is expressing in the strongest language he can, especially in this preface of his great concern for the Israelites. It is a hypothetical statement for these reasons. It would not be effective if Paul were to do so. Because no man can give to God a ransom for his brother. Psalm 49 says that very plainly. And we compare spiritual things with spiritual. For I could wish are the words I'm dealing with right now. Psalm 49 says, No man can redeem his brother by any kind of a sacrifice. John 1.13 tells us that men are born again, not of the will of man. Paul couldn't help them. Romans 9.16, just a few verses later, is going to say, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. It was entirely in God's prerogative of what he was going to do with these Israelites. So it wouldn't be effective. Neither would it be proper or right for Paul to make the choice. For God did not call men to make such actions to compete with him as the Savior of all men. Oh, when I say the Savior of all men, that's 1 Timothy chapter 4, about verse 12. He is the Savior in a providential way of all men. And when it says especially of them that believe, He is a different kind of a Savior toward them. It would not be proper or right for godly men, moved by the Spirit to oppose God's will that is stated right in the context. God elects whom He will, and He hardens whom He will, and God converts whom He will. According to 2 Timothy chapter 2, if God peradventure will grant repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. For Paul, for Paul to try to do something opposite of God would be improper. It would be improper for Paul to say, I want to be an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no value in us being evil that good may come. He is just describing hypothetically a statement comparable to Moses, which I'm going to show you shortly, in order to show to Israel, before he laid the truth of God's new dealings on them, that they might find him acceptable to hear. It was stated, not necessarily as hyperbole, but as the grandest expression possible for Paul to show his compassion and concern. Now, something we should look at before we leave the words is, do we have comparable feelings? Do we have feelings even in this direction? Do we have a commitment or a concern for the souls of others like Paul did? This is not all hypothetical to the point where Paul had no great heaviness or where Paul had no continual sorrow because in the second verse, it says he had both. Verse 3 is just describing an impossible, hypothetical expression of that great heaviness and continual sorrow. But do we have any heaviness? Are we heavy? Are we weighed down by God's elect who are not fully converted and in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have continual sorrow at their lack of conversion? Do rivers of waters run down our eyes because God's Word is not kept by those who should be keeping it? Do the perilous times of the last days cause us grief Or does it just cause us self-righteous joy? Because we're in the number of the redeemed that know the times are perilous, but we ain't part of them. Do we want to find those that are listening to fables and redirect their eyes and ears to the truth? That should be our goal. Let us not race over these verses here in the preface to get to what we might call the meat of the chapter, because there's meat right here in the first five verses, or we're not like Paul. And Paul said, be followers of me as I follow Christ. 
Jesus Christ wept over the city of Jerusalem, which he was going to level to the ground. We do not weep enough. Let's just cut to the chase. We do not have Paul's level of compassion, and we want to have more of it. Instead of being self-righteous and pulling up the gangplank into the ark and saying, God, close the door. You've got me inside now. You've got us inside now, and that's all we really need. The Lord told Noah to go inside that ark, and the Lord closed that door. But until the Lord closed the door, we want to pursue it like David did on the ground with his face in the carpet for seven days and seven nights for a child the Lord had said shall surely die. And we, we want to pray and we want to work until the baby is dead. Lord, help us to have the proper spirit toward those that are not converted. For I could wish, Paul didn't wish, and Paul didn't offer an exchange to the Most High God for the souls of any. What did Paul do? He burned himself out with all that he had to give for the duration of his life. I fought a good fight, I have kept the faith, and I have finished my course. He could say at the end of his life, And that was enduring all things for the elect's sakes. Are you willing to endure anything for the elect's sakes? Are you willing to put up with them when they irritate you to death? Are you willing to listen to their questions when you might think that their questions are opposing themselves? And what does it say we're supposed to do when their questions oppose themselves? The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So the apostle in all three chapters is working for the salvation of some that God might grant him from a body that had been pretty much cut off and rejected. But even though the odds were against him, he was still going to labor, though his ministry was primarily to Gentiles, if by emulation he might get himself a few converted Jews. That's what we're going to get out of these three chapters when it comes to Paul's attitude toward them. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. How did Paul wish to be accursed from Christ for the sake of some of his national kinsmen? We understand this accursed from Christ to be cursed from his fellowship, to be cursed from the practical phase of salvation, to be cursed from the the, the position and place he had in the church of God and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We do not understand this as I could wish that I could go to hell for my brethren. Here's the reasons why, and I may skip over some of them, which you are able to ask me about later or to look up on the outline or to consider further. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1 where we have the word used in a church capacity about being cursed. Galatians chapter 1. We understand a cursed from Christ as rejection from the practical phase of salvation so that the apostle would end up being a castaway, which was something he did not want and that terrified him. He describes it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. A castaway is not someone going to hell. Paul had no fear of going to hell. Paul did have fear of being castaway, of being rejected by God and no longer being used. The best example I know of in the Bible of a castaway is King Saul, who God chose to be the first king of his people Israel, but who at the end of his life was, a, was so profane and had been left by the Lord. He no longer had the Spirit of the Lord with him because God had taken the Spirit of the Lord from him and given it to David. And what a change it made in that man's life. And even Samuel couldn't pray for him. The Lord would tell Samuel, stop praying for him. I've rejected him. That doesn't mean he went to hell. We are not told about the eternal destiny of Saul. But if we compare him to Lot and to Samson and to others... He's very likely in heaven as one of the people of God. You say, but he went to the witch of Endor at the end of his life. So what? When was the last time you read a horoscope in your life? 
Not that you should be reading it, and I hope no one in here has read it in a long time, and I hope that you are an ex-horoscope reader. The Bible doesn't tell us about Saul, and I'm not going to tell you about Saul. I'm just going to give you an example of someone that God used once, and then no longer used. God gave him his spirit, and then took that spirit away, and what a difference it made in that man's life. And Paul dreaded such a situation. So he said, I keep my body under, lest when I myself have preached to others, I should be a castaway. Paul wasn't thinking about going to hell. Your theology is very weak if you think that. Paul wasn't worried about going to hell. He didn't want to be discarded as worthless. By the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 1. We quote these verses often. Do we fully know what they mean? I've preached this to you before. The same thing I'm preaching to you right now when we went through the epistle to the Galatians. Verse 6 of Galatians 1. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. Because there's only one. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. What does a church do when they find a false teacher preaching another gospel than that which the apostles gave them? Do they consign that person to hell? It is not the prerogative of the church of God to consign anyone to hell. They cast them out of the church, which is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is referred to in the New Testament as Christ himself, because he is the head of his body and puts that person under the judgment of God outside the church where God judges them. In 1 Corinthians 5, in the discussion there, in 13 verses of church judgment, the apostle said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his authority, put that incestuous fornicator outside the church because it's your responsibility to judge them that are in the church, and it is God's responsibility to judge them that are without the church. And when God judges, it's called a damnation in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when the apostle told the Corinthians that if you eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink and bring damnation upon yourselves. But these words are not to be understood of eternal fire. These words are to be understood of God's severe judgment, in that case, weak, sickly, and dead, for abusing an ordinance of the gospel. First of all, we go and compare the words that the Holy Spirit uses. And when we find them here in Galatians, we'd never have a service where we consign anyone to hell. We don't even get close to it. All we do is put them out of our fellowship. But when we put someone out of our fellowship, it is not a little game. It is not, you're no longer welcome in my sandbox because we're not talking about a sandbox. We are talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we put them outside that fellowship with Christ where the practical phase of salvation is fully utilized and where God himself honors those that are on the inside unless a church does not deal with them and then God will reach into the church himself and take out an Ananias and a Sapphira or those that were at the church of Corinth. When Paul wants to reach beyond exclusion, he calls for men to be cut off, that is to die physically. Same epistle, Galatians chapter 5. Those Jewish legalists that were corrupting the churches that was starting throughout the Roman Empire, he had a statement for them beyond chapter 1. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 12. I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. Now the word even there is an adverb that is saying, here's an extreme case of my anger against these false teachers. We have chapter 1, then we have chapter 5. I would, they were even, cut off, which trouble you. And that is, I wish God would kill them. That's how cut off is used in the Bible. Your life cut off. And so in chapter 1, 
The churches are told, the churches of Galatia are told, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed to you. Put him on the outside under the judgment of God, away from the Lord Jesus Christ, outside of his table, outside of his fellowship, outside of his kingdom, outside of his church, outside of his body. That's by comparing Scripture with Scripture. We only know of one that is able to consign to hell and to curse men into eternity. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 7, He shall curse men into the lake of fire that he never knew them. The matter under consideration in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is gospel salvation. Election settles eternal life, but gospel conversion, the fourth phase of salvation, and fellowship with Christ and His churches is what's under consideration in these three chapters. The apostle is not trying to give up his eternal destiny for their eternal destiny. The apostle is willing to give up his relationship in the gospel with the Lord Jesus Christ for the relationship of others in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it were more than this, this matter of conversion, because when we get to chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness. What Paul is praying for is what he's willing to give up for them. And what he's praying for is their conversion from ignorance to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would be willing to forfeit what was to him an incredible treasure But he didn't wish it because it was improper to wish it and it was ineffective to wish it. It was a hypothetical statement on his part to point out his compassion and concern for an audience that he wanted to give him an ear when he dropped some very hard doctrine on them in these three chapters. If it were more than this, if it was election to glorification that Paul was willing to be cursed, then we have Paul fighting God's will. We have Paul, he's, a, he's shortly going to declare that it is God who shows mercy and compassion. Now if it's God that shows mercy and compassion, how is Paul, by giving up himself, going to get God to show mercy and compassion? We end up with Paul fighting God in Romans chapter 9, unless we're very careful, and it's part of the way that we learn to understand how the verses of this chapter fit together. Right. Paul is not fighting God. Paul is not saying, if I could make reprobate Israelites elect Israelites, I would give up my election to become a reprobate for them. What he is saying is, my nation that has been blessed with greater privileges than any other nation on earth, so many of them cannot see the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to help them see Him. And though the Lord had blinded many of them, there were always the potential for conversions because Paul describes the potential in chapter 11 saying, I will use any means possible to cause my brethren emulation and to provoke them to emulation that they might be saved. And he's praying for that salvation in chapter 10. And we know in both chapters 10 and 11, he's praying for elect Israelites that they might be converted. He is not praying for reprobate Israelites that they might become elected. If we don't make these distinctions right up front, and we're going to have more of them to make in verses 6 through 8 of this sort, we're going to be confused as we go through these three chapters. These three chapters lead up to the 11th chapter, which is a difficult chapter unless we lay the foundation with with great care at the front end. The apostle is not fighting God's elective plan and wanting to get reprobates elected. He is fighting the nation's darkness, ignorance, and rejection of their own Messiah. And he's willing to do anything for them toward that end. And he didn't say he was willing to trade. He said he could. He had enough compassion rising toward that target. If it were more than this, if it was election to glorification that we're talking about, Paul should have been weeping equally for the Gentiles. Why wasn't he bawling his eyes out for the Philistines? Because he's talking about a privileged people 
with a privilege that was right in front of their faces and that was brought first to them that they were disregarding. The gospel was sent first to Israel. The gospel was sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and to the Jews, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he was, in, he was compassionate and passionate about why they wouldn't believe and why they were still going about trying to establish their own righteousness by the works of the laws, he's going to tell us in chapter 10. We don't understand Paul saying a curse from Christ is condemnation to the lake of fire in the final phase. For Paul to consider such a thing, then you would assume that the issue at stake is eternal life. But it wasn't. The issue at stake was the gospel. As these three chapters teach us, we do not give Paul the credit for having love for souls equal to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God and the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for sinners stand alone. We don't slander Paul by putting him in a posture of opposing God's electing grace and God's will. We don't give Paul the credit for having greater love for the Israelites than Moses, their champion. So let's go look at Moses, since he said something similar. Look at Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. A tendency on our part, because it's been so easy for us, to relegate gospel conversion... And the true knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the true ordinances of divine service and the fellowship of the local church and being part of the kingdom of God, we relegate those things to, oh, we just go to church on Sundays. It's not that big of a deal. It was a huge deal. The Apostle Paul was a zealous man. And he thought within himself that he ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. And when he met Jesus of Nazareth, that change was so profound in his life to know that he had been persecuting the Lord of glory, and now he could serve the Lord of glory. And we, before we were converted, and some of us, because we were brought up as little children in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ in one degree or another, we take for granted the huge blessing it is to have the knowledge of the gospel of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when we think of being accursed, all we think of is going to hell or not. That's an Arminian restriction on your thinking that the only bad thing that can happen to you is to go to hell. No, it's to live in ignorance. It's to live not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to live not having fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to live outside His kingdom, outside of His blessings and promises, outside of the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives. Those blessings are huge. Moses. Oh, Israel has come up with a golden calf. Verse 35 tells us, the last verse of this chapter, the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. Now, do you like reading the Bible carefully? Who made the calf? But who really made the calf? The people. I mean, the Lord's going to get both of them in there. They put so much pressure on him that he caved. But the Lord mentions them both. But here we are. The Lord, Moses is praying to the Lord to have mercy upon the people. And he says in verse 30, It came to pass in the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin. They truly had. And now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. Now he was one of the greatest pastors ever in the history of the Bible. Moses is one of the five great men. Jeremiah 15.1, Ezekiel 14.14. One of the five great men who could pray and deliver the entire nation. But I want you to always have the gospel balance. When Moses made this prayer, it follows after saying, Who was on the Lord's side? And the sons of Levi came and stood beside him. And he said, Put your swords on. Now go through this camp and kill every man his brother, every man his son, every man his friend that had anything to do with this golden calf, and consecrate yourselves to the Lord. Now after they did that, then he says this, It shall come to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the... And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord, back up on Mount Sinai, and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin, 
and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Now how's that for an appeal? This is just like Paul. Moses was the great pastor of the Old Testament. Paul was the greatest pastor of the New Testament. I'm not counting the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great shepherd and bishop of our souls. But notice Moses. You can forgive these people. I know your your anger is waxed hot. I know what you think of golden calves being called the Lord Jehovah and having delivered Israel out of Egypt. But I'm begging you to forgive those people. And if you won't forgive them, I pray thee, go ahead and blot me out of your book that you've written. Now, what's he talking about? Is he talking about getting blotted out of the book of life? Let's go to the next verse and see if the Lord helps us. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Does that help you understand what book is under consideration? It's not the book of life of the Lamb slain found in the book of Revelation. It's the book of the living. It's the book of those that are alive. Because God is about to show you what He's going to do when He blots someone out of His book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. I am going to blot out the sinners. And the Lord plagued the people. They got sick and they died. And you can look up verse after verse after verse about the book of the living and about God blotting out men's names. And it doesn't mean out of the book of life. It means out of life. There's books that God has. Is there a book that God has your genetic contribution to your frame, your height, your weight, and everything else about your body? Is there a book where all your members were written before you were born? Is that what... Where in the Bible can I find that book? Psalm 139. Is there a book written where God has a special memory of those that speak upon His name and who fear the Lord, and that in the day of judgment He will make an exception for them? What, what, what book? Thank you. I don't have more time. God does not blot names out of the book of life. And in verse 33, He says, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. It's got to be a different book for God to blot the names out of. This is how we reason in the Word of God. God does not blot names out of the book of life. The book of life is a covenant book given to the Lord Jesus Christ who died for them and He said, I will lose none of them. No one's blotted out of the book of life. But there are other books that you can get blotted out of. And one is the book of the living. You think the only person that has your birth certificate and that you're still alive is Greenville County? Come on. There's a God in heaven who controls your life. That's why if the Lord will, what does it say next? We shall live and do this or that. I'm not trying to mock the word, I'm not trying to mock your thoughts, but I don't have time to turn you to a th- through more verses here about this because I, I want to get into the rest of this preface. Romans chapter 9, for I could wish, hypothetical only, ineffective, ineffectual, improper. He stated it plainly that it's not a real wish. He could wish. He has a, he has the compassion for these people. And we understand that he is speaking in his, in, about a, being accursed by being put out of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Accursed from Christ in that sense, not cursed by Christ into the lake of fire. Even if it were being cursed by Christ into the lake of fire, it's still just a hypothetical statement in Romans chapter 9. Ineffectual, ineffective, never called upon anyone to do it, and improper to even talk about becoming the enemy of Jesus Christ for the goodness of others, or for the eternal life of others. If Moses intended the Lamb's book of life, described about in the book of Revelation, that he used impossible hyperbole to reason with the Lord, impossible hyperbole to reason with the Lord, Uh uh-uh. Then the Lord shows us that he wasn't talking about that book because he's speaking of a book that he could blot their names out of. Romans chapter 9, verse 4. I mean, verse. let's finish verse 3. For I could wish that my were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
I have enough compassion and a great heaviness upon me and continual sorrow that in a hypothetical way I could speak like Moses and say that if it would do any good, which it wouldn't, I would be willing to lose my standing and my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now see, you and I have never had one like Paul had. Do you know that Jesus Christ taught Paul personally for three years in the deserts of Arabia? Do you know that Jesus Christ appeared to Paul last as one born out of due season? We haven't had that kind of a relationship. The Apostle Paul was the greatest apostle. He had every gift that the Holy Spirit gave to the New Testament church. And he was willing to give that up. He was hypothetically willing to give that up in order to show his audience how much he cared for them. My kinsmen according to the flesh. My brethren. The Apostle Paul, when he would stand up and address a Jewish audience, would call them men and brethren. If it was a mixed audience, he would say men and brethren and whosoever among you feareth God. What did he mean by that? Was he addressing the Jews and saying, I know that most of you are reprobates, so I'm addressing you Jews that fear God? Or was he addressing Gentile proselytes? Men and brethren. Go, Go read it through the book of Acts. Whenever it's a Jewish audience, men and brethren, because they were his brethren, his cousins. When there was a mixed audience with Gentiles, men and brethren... Children of the stock of Abraham, one group. And whosoever among you feareth God. Those Gentile stragglers that are among you, those proselytes that have converted themselves to your religion, I'm addressing as well. Who are Israelites? We come to verse 4. They're his kinsmen, according to the flesh. The apostle Paul said, if any man has cause to glory in the flesh, I more. I'm of the stock of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Many of those Jews couldn't tell what tribe they were from. Because even as early as Ezra and Nehemiah, they had difficulty proving the lineage of the priests, which had more burden and onus upon them to maintain their genealogical records than any other tribe in Israel. But even as far back as Ezra and Nehemiah, 500 B.C., 400 B.C., they they were having a struggle. But Paul knew what tribe he was from. And he says, in the flesh, I'm an Israelite. They're my kinsmen. Who are Israelites? Now the apostle is going to give us a list of blessings of national Israel. But it is for the wise man to understand that the apostle has already pointed out something in chapter 2, the last two verses. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the flesh. But he's going to describe these blessings that are to the nation. But the blessings that were to the nation had within them promises made to the elect within the nation. And he is not going to make that distinction right now. He's going to make it in verses 6 through 8. That the real promises are given only to the elect people of Israel. And those promises are spiritual promises. These promises applied to every Israelite. They were all adopted. (coughs) Let me show it to you. Who are Israelites? My kinsmen, my brethren, my Israelites. First time we have this word in the book of Romans. Do you know what he's called them up to this point? Wasn't their favorite word. It was a word given to them by others. Jews. Referring to the tribe of Judah. You know, Pilate would write, the king of the Jews. Israel was Jacob's name given to him by God that he was a He was a prince with God and that he had won the wrestling match with God for his blessings upon him. And so here Paul, wise and as crafty as a serpent but harmless as a dove, like in Acts chapter 22 when he addresses the Jews in the Hebrew language, (coughs) here he addresses them who are Israelites. You know, he's been talking about these people for quite a bit here in these first eight chapters, but he never called them Israel or Israelites who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. What is this adoption? It's an adoption that that applied to all of Israel. Because this is Old Testament that he is listening to them. Privileges that they were given above other nations that should have caused them to have been more receptive to the gospel sent from God. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, we have these words. Exodus chapter 4 God speaking to Moses about his ministry 
to go back into Egypt and what he's supposed to do when he goes back. Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son. Exodus 4, 22 and 23, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. There are other references I could give you. But when it says it's Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption. The nation of Israel had privileges that God had given them that were great. And it was part of the confounding reason that Paul was so concerned about them that the people of God, so blessed, would reject the Messiah that had been promised to them and that came from their own flesh. It was unbelievable to him. But you know what? He had been one of them. He knew it was all with the grace of God. He said, I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Over there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. But the grace of God was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. He knew that if it hadn't been for God saving him from his ignorance, as he told Agrippa, he verily thought within himself to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. Because I'm out of time, I'm going to go fast. Because next Lord's Day, I want to be at verse 6. So I'm not going to give up. Will you not give up? Will you hang with me for just a few minutes? Here. This is a list. Two Two aspects to the preface. One, Paul's great concern for them. Two, the great privileges they had under the Old Testament leading up, 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 up to where it's Christ came from their flesh. And they should have believed Him because He's over all. He is Jehovah, blessed forever. Amen. 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 But not yet. No amen yet. Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption? And the glory. Who had ever seen the glory of God? Who ever saw the glory of God but the nation of Israel? When the glory of God came down on Mount Sinai, it was all together on a smoke and burning and shaking. A whole mountain. The people were terrified. Moses was terrified. Moses said in Hebrews chapter 12 that he exceedingly feared and quaked because of the glory of God that had come down on Mount Sinai. Have you ever seen a blast furnace and the speed and force with which the heat and the particles are being driven up by the heat? That's what Mount Sinai looked like. And it was the glory of the Lord. Whenever Moses was being threatened by the people, and yes, the best pastor of that church was often, they wanted to stone him to death. But whenever they wanted to stone him to death, if they looked toward the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord had filled it. Because God was there watching them. When, when Solomon, when Solomon dedicated his temple to the Lord Jehovah, and he offered that huge sacrifice, what does it say happened? So that the priest could not go in to this beautiful temple. The glory of the Lord filled the house. And Solomon was blown away because even though Solomon had put so much effort into it and David had put so much money into it, they couldn't believe that God would grant His presence to their house. But the glory of the Lord filled the house so that the priest could not minister by reason of His glory. When the Ark of the Covenant was stolen, what is it called in Psalm 78? What is the five-letter word? Thank you. I was still counting. Glory had been taken from Israel into Philistia. What happened when the glory of God ended up where it didn't belong? Bad case of hemorrhoids. What did they have to give to the glory of God? Golden hemorrhoids as a perpetual reproach to that nation. These people were blessed. But brethren, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, they had nothing compared to what we have. We are far better off than they were. The Apostle Paul, who was a Jew and who was a kinsman of these people, would tell us what we've got is better. We have a better covenant with better promises and a better hope. Amen. Who are Israelites? To whom? Do you know that an Israelite would be? Yes, yes, my brother. They're sitting there in the church at Rome. These Jews looking around at these Gentiles that think they're equal to the Jews. Think about it with me. These Jews, yes. The Israelites, you're not an Israelite as he looks down the pew. You're not an Israelite. We're Israelites. We were the adopted sons of God. We saw the glory of God. You know what the next three chapters are going to do to that man in his pew, don't you? Who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants 
All the covenants they had. Covenants with Abraham. Covenants with Isaac. Covenants with Jacob. We read about them in Psalm 105. The covenant of circumcision. Well, who cares about the covenant of circumcision? Oh, the covenant of circumcision was an outward sign of God's promise that they would have a seed greater than the stars of heaven. All the different covenants. I will be your God. I will destroy your enemies. I will give you this land as far as you were able to see, north, south, east, and west. All the different covenants for an everlasting covenant. Right. Conditional, earthly speaking, everlasting, heavenly speaking. Right. Always dividing in those covenants as to what was the earthly portion and what was the heavenly portion. The earthly portion was conditional upon their obedience. The earthly portion was conditional upon the obedience of one sent for them, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law. What other nation had the law of God? No other nation. Moses told those people in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that this is your wisdom in the sight of all the nations. He told them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is your righteousness in the sight of all the nations. He told them in chapter 32, this is your life. Right. Is to heed this word. And in Psalm 147 in verses 19 and 20, it says, no other nation under heaven had the gift of the word of God like Israel did. This was an incredible blessing. The giving of the law. Not the giving of the New Testament. The giving of the law. These are not blessings of elect Israelites. These are blessings of the nation. Inside them are special blessings for the elect, but Paul has not drawn that distinction as he will draw it in the sixth verse after he says amen. Right now he's just saying things to grant that Israel had great privileges and so that when he took away some of those privileges, they should understand that he was speaking fairly to them of their past history as the people of God, the giving of the law. Do you know what kind of a blessing it is to have the Word of God? I'm thankful for the prayer that was offered this morning that reminded the Lord that we are thankful for the 400-year history of our Bible being preserved for us in English. 400 years! Thank you, Lord. The giving of the law and the service of God. These are the ordinances of divine service that are described in Hebrews chapter 9, 1 through 10. And of course, the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers that give the ordinances of divine service. Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 is the best cross-reference, which you read just a few weeks ago, which describes tabernacle, its compartments, and its furniture, and how the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of others. The service of God. That is how God was worshipped. He had a priesthood. He had a high priest. He had Levites to do the manual labor. All of it arranged. The dimensions of it. The compartments of it. That no one could get into that compartment. Where there were two cherubim over the mercy seat. Where there was blood sprinkled once a year. Where God dwelt. Called a mercy seat. And now we have the Lord Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God where we can go boldly to the throne of God to obtain mercy and help in time of need. Amen. But under the, they had a, they had the ordinances of proper religion. They weren't worshiping dogs or sphinxes or any other creature or any devised creature or the sun or totem poles like the rest of the nations were. They had the service of God, and they had the promises, this land, those seven nations, I will destroy, and I will give you all that they've got. As you read in Psalm 105 with me, all the labors of the people were kept intact and possessed by the nation of Israel. They got the wells dug, the city walls completed, the houses fashioned and formed and built and furnished, and vineyards to yield grapes. For their wine. We read it in Psalm 105, if you were reading carefully. The service of God and the promises. God made so many promises through His prophets to this nation. From Abraham to Malachi, there were promises made. Whose are the fathers? Verse 5. These Israelites, Paul is saying, my brethren, my kinsmen, there are, the fathers are ours. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those great men, those aren't Gentile men. Those are Israelite men. Those are Jewish men. Whose are the fathers? 
<coughs> you Gentiles, right now I'm going to lift up the Israelites before I graft you into their tree. Whose are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came. You Gentiles need to remember something else. Jesus Christ came of the seed of David, of the seed of Abraham. You know how the book of Matthew opens, don't you? The generation. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You say, well, he came through Noah. He came through Abraham. And he came through David. He's the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. As concerning the flesh, Jesus Christ came by the Israelite nation in the flesh. I, I hope I don't have to elaborate on that. Of course, I have lots of verses elaborating on that, but it's not necessary to tell you because I hope you already believe that. God had said through Moses that He would raise up a prophet like unto Moses, but He wouldn't come from the tribe of Levi. He would come from the tribe of Judah. Then it says this about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is over all. Now Paul by the Holy Spirit, is just building his case. Paul starts out with, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. I have great heaviness and continual sorrow. I could wish myself accursed for my brethren, who are Israelites. They're the adopted ones of God. They saw God's glory. They had the covenants made with them. The law was given to them. They had the proper service of God. They, God promised them many things. The fathers are theirs. And Jesus Christ came according to their flesh. He's just building, building, crescendo, crescendo, crescendo. Who is over all? There's one Israelite that is over all. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what you can do with that little present tense of the verb to be? Who is over all? We are not waiting for some millennial kingdom for Jesus of Nazareth to be over anything. He's over it all right now. Hebrews chapter 2 would take Psalm 8 and fulfill it and say that Jesus Christ at the resurrection from the dead and His ascension into heaven was crowned with glory and honor and all things put under His feet. The only thing accepted, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is He that put all things under His feet is accepted. God is not under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, but everything short of God is because He's reigning over it all. I love this. Who is over all. Not who shall be over all. Not who might be over all, but who is over all. We would argue from that present tense verb as strongly as the Lord Jesus Christ argued from the present tense verb am out of Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6 when he defied the Sadducees and says that God does resurrect from the dead and there is a spirit of man after they die because God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Jesus would argue from that verb tense. We'll argue from this one. Jesus is Lord of all. Because the rest of the New Testament teaches the same thing. All angels and principalities are made subject to Him. All thrones, might, and dominion. What else does it say? God. Blessed forever. There's no hyphen there. It's not God blessed forever. This is not Jesus being blessed by God. This is Jesus, God Blessed forever. Just like chapter 1 and verse 25 had already tipped us off what such words should mean. Romans chapter 1, 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you read your, let's just delight in the way that the Lord arranges the Bible. Amen. The Apostle Paul had built up, built up a crescendo in Romans chapter 1 and verse 25 where he describes the creature is less than the Creator and the Creator ought to be worshipped and the Creator is blessed forever. Amen. And so back here in Romans chapter 9 and verse 5, praise be to God for His wonderful Word. Christ came who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. John 1, 3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, because the Lord Jesus Christ created all things. He is the Creator. He is the Creator God. And He's blessed forever. This is a proof and a statement and a declaration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. 
That is our brother Paul introducing to his Israelite audience in particular that he had great compassion for them and that God had blessed them abundantly. But he is now going to point out a division in that nation and it's going to cover the next three chapters, the rejection of many of Israel and the inclusion of many Gentiles for which we should be very, very thankful and grateful. Amen. But not only that, as we look at that list of blessings that Paul listed in verses 4 and 5, let us be thankful for all that we have in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ may not have come from our flesh, but He is now part of our flesh. And we of Him, bone of bones, we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do you want me to go? to help you understand that if these were great blessings for Israel, how much greater are the blessings that we have. We're not going to see the glory of God on Mount Sinai. We're going to be glorified to be like the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Praise God. We're going to have the glory. As the sons of God, Jews and Gentiles alike in heaven. Lord, let us be thankful How about the service of God? We have the divine ordinances of New Testament worship of God. Every one of them we should guard with our lives. And we should have holy passion to protect everything that God's given us. And let us be looking lest we miss anything like these people missed the coming of their Messiah, which had been promised to them with a timetable written by Daniel in the ninth chapter so that they could know exactly what year their Messiah would come. We don't know what year He's coming for us, but He's coming. And He's told us that we should love His appearing, and we should be looking for His appearing, and we should be living in light of His appearing. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.